What an appropriate song to sing and learn at the beginning of a new year. And I pray that you would reflect on the lyrics of the theology of what we have sung together because we will sing the song afresh and, and several times in this month. This morning, we are back in the book of Romans and we are continuing our journey uh, through the book of Romans uh, in chapter 9. Before we open God's word to Romans 9, I want to tell you about the DNA. The DNA is a self-replicating material that is present in nearly all living organisms. It's the carrier of genetic information that is passed on during the process of reproduction. Your DNA is what makes you be you. DNA, the DNA is sometimes called the molecule of life. And sometimes this picture of of the DNA has been used metaphorically to describe what is the essence or the core of, of a thing or an organization. Sometimes people might say, the DNA of our company is excellence. Or some people might say, men just don't do well with shopping. It's not part of our DNA. It's not part of who we are. Well, there are some exceptions, but in general. The DNA describes uh, the core of who you are. The most important information of what you are made of. And this morning, I want us to consider this image of the DNA as a people, as a, as a picture for understanding what makes the people of God be the people of God? What is the element that makes God's people be God's people? We will see that this morning, particularly in a passage that begins with a picture of failure. A picture of no results. A picture that seems that God's word has failed. Would you open God's word to Romans chapter 9? As we embark in the third major section of this glorious book, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 29. Here is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For... 
not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I, have com I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will what, is, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer? Asking God to bless the preaching of his word. 
what a word we have before us. We really need his wisdom. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have revealed to us the purposes of your grace. Would you open this word to us? Would you help me proclaim it clearly? Would you help us understand it? Father, help us understand that you are God and we are not. We pray for the glory of of your grace for sinners, undeserved grace, that this glory might be revealed to us in fresh ways. Pray all this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Year 2023, beginning with Romans 9. It's not uncommon for Bible teachers who work through the book of Romans to jump from chapter 8 and just skip over to chapter 12. After all, it's been very practical to think about what it means to be a Christian in chapters 5 through 8 of Romans, and then we can just straight jump into chapter 12 to work on some application. So it's not uncommon for many teachers of the Bible to just skip over chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. They might think that the theme of Israel and the Gentiles is not very relevant for our lives today. After all, not many of us are Israelites. Why would we bother to deal with this historical record of how God has dealt with Israel? Or others may feel like they can skip over Romans 9 through 11 because they're a little uncomfortable and uncertain what to do with some of the doctrines taught in these chapters, particularly the doctrine of election. Yet chapters 9 through 11 are like a climax of the book of Romans. Far from being like a footnote or an appendix that you can leave out or put in small print, chapters 9 through 11 are like the the climax of what God has been trying to teach us in this book about His grace in saving sinners. Uh, To jump from chapter 8 to chapter 12 would be a great error and a big loss. It would be an error to assume that since we are Gentiles, we don't need to hear how Paul speaks about the Israelites. Actually, in the way Paul speaks about the Israelites, these chapters reveal to us how God has been building a people for himself and how he continues to do so even today. These chapters are more like the medical records or the research notes that help us discover what truly makes the people of God be the people of God. And if we're going to understand that, we must go to the way Paul speaks about the Israelites and about how God has been dealing with them from the beginning. That's why the theme of the message this morning is the DNA of the people of God. What is the DNA of the people of God? 
The short answer in this chapter, and let me just assure you of this, I have thought multiple times in the course of preparing this message, why was I so crazy to take such a long text on such a rich and difficult uh, set of truths expounded here? But nevertheless, I chose the challenge of saying, let's go and offer an overview of this long passage in one sermon. And if I could summarize it in one sentence, what this passage wants to teach us is that the DNA of the people of God is God alone. To put it another way, God's people come into existence through God. The element that makes people be the people of God is God alone. The people of God owe their existence to God exclusively. We don't make ourselves Christians. Our parents don't make us Christians. Our backgrounds don't make us Christians. God makes us Christians. God's true people come into existence because of God alone. I want us to see from this passage, and I want you to see from this passage, how Paul comes to talk about what makes the people of God be the people of God. Now, this passage could be divided in in four parts, and uh, Paul will build an argument for this claim that the DNA, the core of what makes the people of God be the people of God is God alone. Four parts to this claim. Wrong clues for the DNA of the people of God. Number two, God's people come into existence through God's promise and election. God's people come into existence because of God's undeserved mercy. And finally, God's people come into existence by God's sovereign will. This is what makes the DNA of the people of God, God. Let's work at e- through each of these sections and see what, how Paul and what Paul is unfolding for us. Some wrong clues for the DNA of the people of God. Paul begins this uh, difficult and yet glorious section of the book of Romans, this third section, in verses 1 through 5, telling us of his great sorrow and anguish that he feels for his fellow Israelites. Even though they had tremendous advantages, such as having the law, the covenants, the worship at the temple, the promises, the adoption, the patriarchs being part of their lineage, and as if that was not enough, Paul says that even the incarnate Christ came from their family lineage. In other words, the pedigree of their spiritual background, of their religious background, was stellar. Yet, they rejected the Messiah. And Paul feels great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them. Why would he feel that about his fellow Jewish people? Because they were perishing apart from Christ. 
Mere religious background is not sufficient to make us the people of God. Mere access to spiritual advantages is not enough to make one belong to the people of God. One can have the privileges of the people of God and yet not belong to the people of God. And Paul would rather be cut off from Christ if they would only come to place their faith in Christ and be united to Christ. Now, Paul is not suggesting that he could actually be a substitute for his people. Here we see Paul's heart echoing the heart of Moses when Moses also interceded before God for the people of Israel when God was about to wipe them away, destroy them all, because they have rebelled against him and made a golden calf, and God was ready to wipe them all away. And Moses said, God, wipe me away. Don't wipe them. This is Paul's heart about his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, about ethnic Israel. He realizes that apart from Christ, they would be wiped away. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter that they were Israelites. It didn't matter that they had the covenant. It didn't matter that they had the law. It didn't matter that they had the promises. It didn't matter that they had the so-called adoption. Oh, friends, what was at stake with the Israelites who had all these advantages yet rejected God's plan for salvation in Jesus and through Jesus is that they were about to perish. And Paul feels great sorrow for them, great anguish, unceasing anguish. And this brings up a big dilemma that Paul seeks to clarify. Not only is his soul, his heart, filled with great sorrow and with great anguish, but he, he wants to clarify, does this mean that, that the word of God has failed? I mean, after all, God had promised to build a people for himself. If they have rejected the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament, does this mean that God and his word have failed? Does the Israelite rejection of the Christ mean that God's character and the reliability and the power of his word are now somehow failing? This question will actually govern the entirety of chapters 9, 10, and 11. The reliability of the word of God to carry out what he has said he would. God's own character and the character of his word is on the line, questioned here as Paul reflects on the failure of the Israelites to put their faith in the Messiah. And Paul wants to help us see how God has been working to build his people from the beginning of the Old Testament, beginning with the book of Genesis, going on to the book of Exodus, and all the way through the prophets. Paul will bring up numerous examples from the Old Testament to prove the case 
that actually it's not God's character or God's word that we somehow misunderstand here in the failing of Israel. It's not that God's word has failed or that God's character has changed, but we must rightly understand who the people of God are. What makes the people of God be the people of God? Look at verse 6. What Paul says in verse 6 is like the thesis of this whole third section of the book of Romans. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. So how do we put if Israel has not followed suit, has not believed in Christ, how do we put that together with a reality that God has made all these promises and yet so many of the Israelites have not followed Christ? Paul begins unfolding his answer in verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham are his offspring. Neither biology nor spiritual upbringing is sufficient to make one the people of God. Some Christians today still hold on to this view about the nation of Israel, that all Jewish people belong to the people of God. But Paul could not be more clear For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, we must consider what makes the people of God be the people of God. If it's not biology, if it's not physical descent, if it's not access to to the spiritual advantages of being the people of God, then what is it that makes people be the people of God? Oh, friends, before we jump in to see how Paul unfolds the answer to this question, let me just put this before us as a caution and a warning. Having access to the Word of God and to the spiritual benefits of the people of God. Having a great spiritual pedigree still left Paul with great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his ethnic brothers and sisters because apart from faith in Christ, they are perishing. And anyone would be perishing apart from faith in Christ. But even before the coming of Christ, God has showed his people how he was working to build them up. So what are, what are the elements in this DNA of the people of God? God is the DNA. You say, well, can you unfold that for us? Yes. God's people come into existence through God's promise and election. God's people coming to existence through God's promise and election. The first two examples Paul gives are from the book of Genesis with the first two patriarchs, with Abraham and with Isaac. 
to both of these patriarchs, sons were born. And how God worked through, the, through, through that offspring shows the pattern of how God builds his people. The first example is Abraham's example. And his offspring clarifies how God chooses to build up his people. Isaac was not Abraham's first son. Ishmael was. But God says that only Isaac was the child who came to become, to be considered, Abraham's offspring. Only Isaac was a child who came through God's promise. And thus only Isaac would be counted as the one through whom God would build his people. This shows that the children of God are those born as a result of the word of God being promised to the people of God. Through that which God has spoken. This is why the proclamation of the word of God is a priority for us. Because God gives birth to his people through his word. This is why we encourage every member of this church to speak the truth of the gospel clearly and frequently. Because God built his people through his word, through his promise. But then in the second example, God moves to tell us about the birth of Isaac's children. Jacob and Esau. They were twins. Born of the same father and of the same mother. Born at the same time. Yet Esau ended up not belonging to God's people, even though he was a descendant of Isaac and Rebekah. To show us that merely being born in the right family, with the right spiritual background, with the right parents, is not sufficient to make you become the people of God. In this example, Paul shows us that God built his people not based on what people do, but based on God's calling of election. Look at verses 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Well, friends, here God shows us that he is building his people not based on birth entitlement, but based on God's free choice. God built his people not based on our good works, not based on what these children would do, but based on God's free choice. God chose the older brother to become the slave and the servant of the younger brother, because in ancient times, the older brother deserved a special status and privilege. But God's election of Jacob over Esau shows that God is not electing based on human expectations. 
God's purpose of election works against what we would expect or feel entitled to. So even though Esau was a physical descendant of Israel, of Isaac and Rebekah, even though Esau was a twin brother of Jacob and was a firstborn brother, Esau was never part of the people of God. And it was all because of God. Because mere physical descent or human choice or human works are not enough to cause any of us to be part of God's people. The DNA of God's people is not in ourselves, but in God. Does it make it seem like belonging to God's people is entirely dependent on God? Yes. This is what Paul wants to teach us. This is how God is building up his people. From the very first book of the Bible, from the book of Genesis, he wants you to know God is building his people through his word and through his electing grace. Paul's aim is to show us that none of us becomes part of the people of God because we're good enough or because we deserve it. No human entitlement will be sufficient for you or me to be a part of the people of God. Parents, you and I desire to give our children a good and godly upbringing, and so we should. God's Word teaches us to teach our children about the Lord. But we must remember that the salvation of our children is not based on the fact that our children grow up in godly homes. It's not based on the fact that our children grow up in a godly church. At the end of the day, the salvation of our children is based on God not on our parenting. That's why we must pray to God for the salvation of our children. He alone is able to make our children become his people. So if you have children, teach them. Be an example to them. But at the end of the day, pray for them. Because nothing, nothing in your power or in their access to information or benefits or privileges will be sufficient to make them the people of God. If people come into existence because of God's promise and choice, then one of the questions is, is there an injustice with God? And this is the objection that Paul is anticipating in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. So starting with verse 14, we see the third part and the, the third truth about the DNA of the people of God. God's people come into existence not only through his promise and electing uh, grace, but God's people come into existence because of God's undeserved mercy. Paul addresses this in verses 14 through 18. He gives Two more examples. This time, 
he moves to the book of Exodus. From Genesis, he moves to Exodus. And he's going to give the example of Moses and the example of Pharaoh. The example of, of Moses and Pharaoh both show that no one is entitled to God's mercy. That God does not owe anyone even an ounce of mercy. Quite the opposite, God is free and would be fully right to disperse his wrath and anger against all humanity. The example of Moses. Notice what lesson God taught Moses, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. These words will be helpful for us to understand if we remember the context in which God has spoken these words. He said these words in the book of Exodus after the people of God fashioned a golden calf. In Exodus 32. And God determined that he was going to wipe them away. Destroy them all. All of them deserve to be destroyed except Moses. But Moses is the only one who interceded with God and even said, God, put me in their place. Wipe me out and keep them. You can see this notion of substitution. The one who didn't deserve to be wiped out, asks God to be a substitute. And God chose to relent from executing his judgment on his people. And then in Exodus 33, he says these words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So if anyone would accuse God that he is somehow unjust for choosing some and not others, for choosing some but not choosing all, we must remember that none of the Israelites deserved God's mercy. And yet, God chose to keep some alive and destroy others. What is the point that Paul draws from this example of what it means to belong to the people of God? Look at verse 16. He draws the conclusion for us. He says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What does it take to belong to the people of God and to stand living among the people of God and not be wiped away? It all depends on God and his free mercy. God's people used their free will to squander their right to be God's people. And God chooses his free will to have mercy on whom he wants to extend that mercy to. And it's totally God's prerogative and right to show that mercy and kindness to whoever he wants to give it. God is free to show his mercy to undeserved sinners. Now, if God's mercy is undeserved mercy, the opposite is also true, that his judgment, judgments are rightly deserved. And this is why God raised Pharaoh 
And God tells us here in this passage that Pharaoh now functions as an example of God's right to execute his wrath and to pour his judgments on whomever he wills. In this case, look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised Pharaoh up, not as an object of his mercy, but as an object of his judgment. Through the judgments of the ten plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt, God showed his sovereign power over those who have taken the path of rebellion. And the result was that God's name would be proclaimed through the judgment of God against Pharaoh. The name of God would be proclaimed in all the earth. I mean, just think of the fact that the Prince of Egypt, the movie, has been aired throughout the earth. Just think of the fact that God has made known to us that he has the right and the power to bring judgment on all those who oppose him. Now, why is Paul bringing up the example of Pharaoh? Look at the conclusion that Paul wants us to draw from this example in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Friends, God is free to dispense his mercy as he wishes, and he is right to dispense his judgments as he wishes. And he is glorified in both both in mercy and in judgment. But some may say, but that's unfair. That's unjust. God must treat everyone equally. Well, friends, if God would tr treat everyone equally, we, must, we, would all, we would all be under his judgment. That's the equal treatment of God against all humanity. God's mercy is not, towards us is not an inalienable birthright that we are entitled to. He can choose to give his mercy to some knowing that actually all of us deserve his judgment. What's important for us to realize is that God doesn't harden us against our will to do otherwise. When God hardened Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not in a neutral state towards God. In our natural state, none of us are in a neutral state toward God. We have all rebelled against him. If God leaves us to our free will, we will choose to do what the Israelites have done in Exodus 32, to exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image made of this creation. And isn't that how the book of Romans started in chapter 1? This is where our free will always take us, takes us freely. 
All of us have forfeited our right to be part of the people of God because all humanity has chosen to worship creation instead of worshiping our maker. None of us have any right to any entitlement to God's mercy. So is it just for God to show mercy to whoever whoever he wishes? Absolutely, it is right. Because actually the most just thing for God to do is to actually damn all of us. And he would be perfectly righteous and holy if he did that. And yet, we should be amazed that God would choose even one person to be the object of mercy. Even one person receiving God's mercy would be totally undeserved. Friends, is it hard for you to believe that God is free to show his mercy to whomever he wants or harden whomever he wants? If you still struggle with that part, Paul says you're on the right track. It means you're getting what I want you to understand. And he leaves us with a fourth point in this passage. The fourth part of the DNA of God constituting his people. God's people come into existence by God's sovereign will. God's people come into existence by God's sovereign will. Now, some people have a hard time accepting the sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people. But we understand correctly what Paul intends to communicate if you find yourself uttering the same objection that Paul is bringing up in verse 19. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, we understand the sovereignty of God in salvation correctly when you are led to ask this objection. The biblical way of understanding the sovereignty of God in salvation, in the salvation of his people, should lead you to this objection. If you have a view of the sovereignty of God in salvation that would not lead you to this objection, you would misunderstand what Paul intended to say. Instead of saying that God's sovereign will is based on people's choice, Paul defends God's sovereign will on the fact that he's God and we're not. And he gives a picture, the picture of a potter and his clay, a picture that was used by the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And Paul says, after he spoke about how God hardened Pharaoh, it would have been easy for Paul to say, yeah, but didn't you read the book of Exodus that actually before God hardened Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart? Paul could have said that. That would have eased the problem and not have this tension. But that's not where Paul goes. He says, the way to solve this tension is to recognize 
you are man, and he's God. Look at verse 21 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Friends, this image of the potter and the clay drives home the sovereign right of God to do whatever he pleases with those whom he has created. And some may say, well, I have a hard time believing in that kind of God. I, have, I remember a conversation I had with a, with a brother in Christ. And we, we were debating about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And he says, I just cannot believe in a God who would do that. And all I got to say is read the Old Testament. God predicted even in the Old Testament that he would do it this way. Read the book of Romans. God said he would do it this way. At the end of the day, the question is not how can God do that? It's not about us keeping God accountable. Paul reminds us we are the creation. God is the creator. We are the clay. He is the potter. The one who made us, the one who breathed life into us, the one who designed us for his purposes can do with us whatever he wishes and he remains sovereignly good. What a contrast we have here between vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. God's sovereign will works in both. But the big question is, who are the vessels of mercy whom God prepared beforehand for glory? And Paul tells us here, God's sovereign will is surprising. God's sovereign will is unexpected. In what way? In this way. He calls to himself the undeserving He calls to himself those who were not his people to make them his people. Look at verses 25 and 26. He's quoting another prophet, Hosea. Indeed, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is amazing news. The ones who had no right to be called the people of God will become, will be invited, will be made to be called Sons of the living God, called beloved when they were not, called my people when they used to be not my people. Friends, even in the Old Testament, it was foreshadowed that God's true people will not be limited only to ethnic Israel. God is sovereign in his will 
to make and build up his people as he wishes and he does so surprisingly to us but God's sovereign will is surprising in another way also those who expected and felt entitled to belong to God's people failed they rebelled against God even though they felt assured that they were God's people Look at verses 27 and 28. Paul brings up another prophet, this time again Isaiah. Isaiah cries out, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. By the way, that was a promise God gave to Abraham. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In other words, some of the ethnic nation of Israel found themselves in the same category as Pharaoh. Raised up to be vessels of wrath. Because merely having the privileges of God's people does not mean that they belong to God's people. And Paul gets back to where he started in verses 1 through 6. Not everyone who descends from Israel is part of the remnant of Israel. And even the remnant of God's people have their source of their life in God. Look at verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted... If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This quote comes from the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. In other words, ethnic Israel really deserved the same destiny as Sodom and Gomorrah. If anyone was kept alive from among the ethnic nation of Israel... It was not because of their right or ability to make it through. It was purely because of God's sovereign will to keep them alive. Who gets a credit for surviving God's judgment in the Old Testament? God does. God kept a remnant alive. It was his sovereign will. So this brings us back to the point that God's people exist by God's will. Because if it was left to your will and mine, if it was left to your ability and mine, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the truth about God's sovereign will in our salvation should not lead anyone to think that God will hold out of his salvation, those who want to be saved but can't. If you desire to be saved, come to the Lord. He will save you. He will not turn you away. Because anyone who would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But no one comes to the Lord, no one comes to even desire the Lord, no one wants to 
put their faith in Christ, if somehow God left them to their own devices. Friends, even our desire to repent and put our faith in Jesus is evidence that the Spirit of God has been working in us to convict us of our sin and to show us the hope we have in Jesus. Even the desire to come to the Lord is evidence that the Lord is already working in you. If you feel that battle in your heart of whether or not to turn away from your sin and trust in Christ, oh friends, turn to the Lord. He will receive you. That is evidence of God's work already in your life. But also, consider that just because God is fully sovereign in salvation, in the salvation of his people, does not mean that we should be careless about evangelism. Paul, in this amazing chapter about the doctrine of God's electing grace, feels great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the people of God, physically descended, the ethnic Israelites, It means that we should have a burden for the lost precisely because we believe in God's sovereignty over our salvation. And Paul was willing to sacrifice himself, his own life, for the life of his people. Paul could have said, well, if it's God's choice, it's God's choice. I can just have an easy life and not worry about evangelism, not worry about sacrificial living. Paul says, I wish I would would be accursed. I would be cut off from Christ. I would be a substitute. Oh, here Paul shows his sacrificial willingness to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to the lost. Because to believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation does not mean that we somehow suspend the means that God uses to bring about the salvation of his people. That's why the the passage we've read earlier in in our service about what we believe about God's grace in election is so helpful and and powerful. Because God's sovereignty in salvation does not mean that we are careless about evangelism. No, we are burdened for the lost and we are sacrificial with our lives to make sure this gospel gets to be proclaimed. The truth about God's sovereignty in salvation should also create in us deep humility. Because our inclusion in the people of God is not based on our birthright. It's not based on our desires. It's not based on our will. It's not based on our merit. It's not based on our good works. It's based entirely on God's mercy. And that should make these people and us humble to receive one another. Humble to to serve one another. Before Paul will teach and apply the truth of the gospel to the church of Rome to love one another and to welcome one another in Christ. He teaches them about God's sovereign mercy for every one of us, to put in the foundation for our humility as we live as one body. Well, friends, when we understand how God has told us in his word that he builds up his people, we will, we will be a humble people. We will be a people 
really willing to let down our guards in serving one another because we realize not only that we are the undeserving recipients of God's unmerited grace, but our brothers and sisters are the same undeserving objects of God's unmerited grace. Oh, friends, when we understand the DNA of God's people, of what makes the people of God the people of God, we will have a burden for the lost. We will be sacrificial in seeking God to make sure this gospel gets communicated. We will be humble in the way we live for one, with one another, and we will seek God to bring about the purposes that he has decreed. We will be a praying people. Oh, friends, when we understand the DNA of God's people, we understand that God's word has not failed, even when the results are not what we expected. So what is the DNA of God's people? God's people come to life through God's promises and election. God's people come to exist through God's undeserved mercy. And God's people come to exist through his sovereign will. And his sovereign will invites the undeserving to be his people and sustains us entirely through his grace. This is the DNA of the people of God. It's God alone. Let's praise him. Let's worship him. Let's boast in him. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for revealing to us the way you build up your people. The way you have began, begun building up your people, even from the book of Genesis. The way you have planned for this people to be built, even before the foundation of the earth. Father, we thank you that it is not in us, but in you, that we owe our right to be the people of God. So we want to praise you, we want to glorify you, that you have done it through and through, that you are doing it through and through, and that you will do it through and through. Help our confidence to be exclusively and entirely in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.